0: So Hindu listeners, in this episode, I'm speaking with someone I'm very pleased to have known professionally for several years now and is a previous That So Hindu guest, Ramachari Sharan, Director of Hindu Life and Campus Ministry at Georgetown University, professor there in the Departments of Theology and Linguistics. Today we're discussing the internal pluralism of Hinduism and how some of that internal diversity has been flattened a bit and how Hinduism has been presented and presents itself to the world. Thanks so much for joining us. This interview came about because I asked Dr. Sharon to come on another podcast HAF is doing called All About Hinduism. And he had, I wouldn't describe them as concerns exactly, but he wanted to be sure his comments would fit in with what we wanted to do. And I said, what he was bringing up was a great podcast unto itself. It's a great topic. So we're here today. The issue I wanted him to comment on, paraphrasing from the All About Hinduism script is... Hindus understand that the divine manifests in different ways, is understood and worshipped in different ways. This isn't just a reference to Hinduism vis-a-vis other religious traditions, but within Hinduism itself. So, what is this internal pluralism? And how does it figure into Hinduism? And why does this somewhat upend the very topic of the nature of Hinduism and
1: the word Hinduism itself? Right. Um, Thank you for that, (laughs) It is quite a, a vast topic. And in order to kind of hone in on the question as you phrase it, I think one thing that we can do is to think a little bit about what template we have been given right? when it comes to the world religion we've inherited uh, known as Hinduism. Just in the way that you um, introduced it, as we see the divine um, in different manifestations, in the variety of uh, what was what was formerly called denominations or sects of um, hinduism the thing is if we were to look back through our own traditions through our own sanskrit and non-sanskrit uh, historical teachings we would have to counter the fact that encounter the fact that there are a sizable number of our darsanas that are non-theist in their uh, teachings and in their philosophy and that the practices that develop around those teachings and philosophies are geared more towards um, a non-theist goal. The goal is still moksha, the goal is still liberation, but in their articulations of it, it it does not involve a theos, a, a divine. So that was one of the things that I came across when I was studying myself as a student. And it therefore made me question this tendency towards putting one stamp, one template out there and that everybody must conform to this template. It sounds a lot more like um, foreign uh, empires in the 1800s methodologies rather than our own dharmic methodologies. So that's perhaps where I'd start and I'd look for your uh, questions to see where we go from here. That's so Hindu is really aimed at a general audience. Can
0: you go into those non-theistic traditions a bit so listeners can orient themselves?
1: Yeah. Um, so if we were to look at the Vedas themselves, the Vedas uh, are interpreted by six darshanas that we know of. And those darshanas, those six philosophical systems, uh, the majority of them are non-theist in their inceptions. And they take, um, you know, it takes the arrival of foreign empires before some of them pivot to being Monotheist. We have our own three surviving and enduring monotheist traditions, which are shaiva Shakta, and Vaishnava dharmas. And then we have these six philosophical schools. We know them as Nyaya, uh, the school of logic, Vaisheshika, the school of uh, atomism, Nyaya, Vaisheshika, Sankhya, the school of emanation theory, yoga, yoga. Um, and then Purumimansa, which is a ritual tradition, and that fo- is all followed by Vedanta, which is the philosophy that we most associate with uh, Hinduism today. But those five other philosophies are part and parcel of our traditions, and those in their inceptions are wholly non-theistic. So what, therefore, should we be focusing on when we're talking about Hinduism or dharmas in general, I don't think it's about seeing the divine in everything. I think it's more about our prayojana and that prayojana, the goal of the dharmas, what the dharma's purposes are across the board is simply finding ways to manage samsara, manage or be freed from uh, the cycles, repetitive cycles of suffering and dissatisfaction that we find ourselves in or we find ourselves put into. So If we were to reorient our understanding away from what the missionaries taught us, the missionaries wanted us to tell us, "Okay, we have Jesus, we have God. What do you guys have? Rather than going off that kind of a playbook, let's look at how our own acharyas talked about their dharmas, our own ancestors talked about their dharmas. And when they talk about it, they say, yeah, this world is full of um, various types of suffering. What methods do we have to manage it? Um, and is there a final way of, you know, being freed from this the, uh, displacement cycles and um, repetitive nonsense we find ourselves involved with? Is there a way? And the common consensus was yes, but the consensus was up till that point. And then after that, there are different techniques for the different types of people that exist. Um, that accounts for the variety in our dharma. So that's where our pluralism comes from. But if you're looking for the unifying factor, it ain't God. <laughs> it is definitely the Pryojana, uh, which is uh, the goal of the dharmas, which is to be freed from these cycles we find ourselves in. I'm pausing here because I'm trying to unpack that
0: a bit. Because on one hand, it makes sense, but it also leaves me as someone whose job it is to represent Hinduism in the world today. From a communal perspective, HAF is not a religious organization as much as it is as a community organization so what then how do we marry your perspective on this with the fact that we've been handed something that comes out of Western colonial ideas about Hinduism how do we as Hindus marry those two internally you know how how can we reconcile those
1: you know I I was thinking about this and I've been thinking about this for many many years and I I don't want to say it is as simple as pluralizing terms but if we were to look at what was yesterday yesterday was uh, Chaitra Shukla Pratipada, which is celebrated as the uh, Lunar New Year in certain places across uh, South Asia and beyond. But if you were to go to each region um, and you were going to ask them what is the name for uh, their celebration and what they actually do, they're vastly different. Whether you have Chaiti Chand up in the the Sindh area or you have Ugadi uh, down in... uh, uh, Telugu speaking areas and Karnataka uh, and uh, those regions, you also have to counter encounter the fact that it's also the beginning of the spring Navratri in some areas and other areas, not at all. And then our, uh, uh, our tribal sisters and brothers from these areas also have different uh, festivals that are on the day of the new year. There is a movement to call that day the Hindu new year. But as we know, our Gujarati sisters and brothers, they celebrate their new year um, the day after the Bawali in um, the autumn. So when we try to put one square thing around everybody, okay, in the West we have uh, you know, December 31st, January the 1st, that's the new year for everyone. Do we necessarily need to use that method as our way of presenting ourselves to the world? I don't think we need to present ourselves as a one thing. I think we can use... The gateway that Hinduism has, as it's been included in the world religions paradigm, if people recognize that Hinduism is a religion, then OK, as Hindus, we go into that door, we go through that door. And as soon as we go through that door, we blow the door wide open and we say, yes, we have a Hindu New Year on, you know, the first of Chaitras, uh, bright half of the month. But also... <clears throat> That new year is different for all the different types of dharmas that, uh, that celebrate it then. And we also have a solar new year, which is uh, celebrated in Tamil places as Putanda, in Nepal as Sankranti. That comes on the April 14th, which is also Vaishakhi. So maybe just pluralizing things is a way to start it. Um, and so it's not a question of Hinduisms, but when people ask us a question like, so when is your new year? We have many new years. And here are the major, we have a lunisolar calendar, we have some lunar New Year's and we have some solar New Year's and we have some people that celebrate both. That's, it's not, it doesn't fit within the word count that we're given usually. But I think that even if we leave out some of the texture of it, just pointing to the fact that we have this variety, whenever people say the word Hinduism is a solid first step
0: can you speak a little bit to how Hinduism became one thing, how those, how these diverse traditions and viewpoints, some theistic, some non-theistic became united or, or pushed together into one thing as it were?
1: Yeah. Pushed together sounds a bit better. Um, when I say a little bit better, I mean a little bit more matching the history of this. So let's rewind a bit. We had our three monotheist traditions themselves born of conglomeration, uh, not that they were one thing and split, but rather they were different things that had similar traits and then were uh, brought together with similar names. So we're talking about Shiva, Shakta, and Vaishnava dharmas, those three that survived. There were two more, Garnapati and Sora Those two were amalgamated. Um, but you're basically talking about three ancient monotheist dharmas. You then have the fact that there were numerous it's not so much that we can't count them, but there were more than 100 uh, different tribal dharmas that chose to stay separate um, and retain their individual identities. And then you have um, the dharmas that follow on from the Vedas. So once the Vedas come in, you have your Vedic dharmas and then you have your non-Vedic dharmas, such as uh, the Bodha and Jaina uh, dharmas that survive, but also Charvaka and the rest of the seven there. So all of these possibilities for dharmas were there in South Asia and also the rest of Asia too. And they existed as such all the way until other people started talking about what was going on in South Asia. So you could say that Megasthenes, with his Indica, right, you know, 300 BCE, um, that even from then... People had trouble understanding the diversity and so tried to talk about the entirety as if it was one thing. Um, But Magathanas didn't have the kind of power that the later folk who came did. And so whether it was Al-Biruni, even Al-Biruni, to his credit, he recognized that there were so many different types of traditions, but ultimately they were lumped under the heathen category. Uh, Michael J. Altman wrote a pretty good book about this, especially from the American perspective. That it was when the missionaries and when the travelers went to India and they didn't have the framework with which we now have, or at least we had in the dharmas, um, to understand what diversity was. They saw it all as manifestation of one heathenry. And as heathenry gave way to the Enlightenment and they were like, well, yeah, the church is also um, not a good thing. Then heathenry simply became um, talked about as a regional or a geopolitical phenomenon where we then get the use of Hinduism as um, the terminology for all of those different dharmas I just outlined for us. So when you get that, you now have to figure out that, okay, we have the British empire on top of us and uh, somebody needs to speak the language that the British will understand because obviously on their own accord, they haven't understood the diversity in India. And unfortunately, at that point in time, it became imperative to get out from underneath the British control. So at that point in time, it was more important to focus on talking British language. So if I have a religion, I must have a claim to a land because in uh, British Christian eyes, religion and land go hand in hand. So we then get the um, articulation of Sanatana Dharma and Bharata Varsha coming hand in hand. Um, And also the reason that Christianity is seen uh, legitimate in the West at that time was because of its ability to unify, superficially so, as everybody knows. Um, And so even in India, we started to speak about this unified people. But then when it came to talking about our own diversity, we started to adopt the British language of superstition. We also... Had different ways of living, and we didn't ever judge those different ways of living. However, we started to adopt British Victorian standards of morality, um, where, as we can see, those 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 uh, those things were very short-lived in both places. So, um, we we were handed a template in order to gain the kind of legitimacy in their eyes that we could then. Pushed them out because we were legitimate people ourselves, and since that time we've been talking about. So it's two hundred years we've been talking about ourselves in that way. At least the people who are educated in English. So, what do we do? I don't think it's a bad thing that Hinduism exists because it gives us a seat at the world table. Because the world is fashioned in the uh, in the legacy of the eighteen hundreds European empires. Whether there are reactions such as communism or whether there are direct legacies such as all of the British colonies, for example. So we have to deal with the fact that we have 200 years of a presence of a certain kind of identity. And I think that now that we're free, 70 years have passed since we've had to uh, take on that identity. I think it's about time that we learn how to speak about diversity. And we could take some lessons from our Native American sisters, brothers, um, and non binary kin. We could take some lessons from um, Hispanic studies, from African studies, all of these areas where they realize that actually we have to serve ourselves better. But as people who know by figuring out how to bring diversity to a table where there is only one seat. That seems a mighty task,
0: in all honesty. How do you re- how do you represent that diversity with with one voice? I ask because many times over my career as a professional Hindu, I've been asked to give the Hindu perspective. And my heart, my heart stops for a second. And I always have to push back because I can give a Hindu perspective. My perspective is someone who identifies as a Hindu, who's reasonably studied and learned, not as learned as you, but has a pretty good grounding in history and theology. But it's still just my perspective. So then for listeners how can they do you think engage with this and take this discussion into their lives and imply it in some way because to me this is a fascinating topic i agree both with this idea of internal pluralism but also having to talk the talk in an interfaith dialogue how can this how can listeners bring this to a personal level
1: you know you you basically highlighted one of the methodologies i use myself i push back on the question i don't push back aggressively or anything like that but i just say I try to create some space for a plurality of answers should the person be interested, because let's face it, they're usually not looking for um, representative answers. They're just looking for an answer to serve whatever narrative or agenda they have. Um, And I think that we as practitioners of Hindu traditions, we then give credence to their agendas by responding in the way that they're expecting. So I try not to do that. especially where there is uh, historical proof for the fact. The biggest change for me happened in my life when I started to travel around uh, India and Nepal and Bali and the West Indies. When I traveled around these regions, there is a central teaching in our our tradition is that you do not, uh, even though you might not agree with the practice of another, you do not shake their faith in it. and so I went to people in, uh, you know, in um, in uh, Nepal, where they're worshipping, uh, they're venerating rather uh, Kala Bhairava, a deity who is very uh, dear to us in Varanasi, um, venerating uh, Kala Bhairava with uh, with offerings of buffalo and offerings of um, uh, fish and of chicken and of eggs in a way that I would never, ever be able to understand if the Hinduism that we are supposed to learn from our schools and from what the world tells us Hinduism is, um, I would never be able to understand that. But then I looked at the people that were there and they were thoroughly, thoroughly devoted to the practice that they were doing, completely in tune with the vibes that they were uh, seeking. And for the moment in time that they were there doing these uh, venerations, they felt an alleviation of sansara from them. And that's exactly what all of the dharmas are supposed to be about. When I saw that, my brain didn't know what to do with it because of the frameworks we've been fed um, from when we were small, thanks to the education we received, which is again, a supremacist type of operation. There is diversity, of course, but so long as it's subservient to someone, uh, then it's fine in the Western ed- Academy. However, here, I was faced with the fact that I needed to give them equal credence. I needed to give them equal respect. I wouldn't be practicing the way that they were practicing, but their devotion to Bhairava was, should not be called into question. So when I sat with that, and I thought, and I sat, and I thought, I started to see other things. I mean, this Kantara film that was just uh, receiving rave reviews over uh, through Netflix. Here you have people who are practicing devakola, a type of uh, dance, embodied dance of oracles um, that was very, very common across most of our tribal dharmas and has some retained presence in even the more formalized dharmas. Um, Yet people were trying to say that the Varaha Rupa, the form of the boar that was venerated uh, in this uh, particular film, that Panjurli was the same as Varaha of the Vishnu incarnations. Completely different things. But because we were educated in this English language way, we suddenly have to tell everybody, oh, no, 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 this is how they do their Vishnu worship, which is, I mean, it's factually not correct. So I think that what a Hindu can do is realize that our experience is our experience. And then we go and we try to experience different types of dharmas that people are practicing, different ways that they're practicing the same things that we may be practicing, for example. And just let it sit with us. And at some point, we'll try and find the words to express it. Because if I was to try and prescribe you something, I think we would have to sit down as a bunch of scholars and figure out a way of going uh, going forward with this. But I think that the more and more that we live into our dharmas and we meet people of our our, our persuasions that do things differently, I think we are going to have to come up with a framework uh, that better helps explain it to others. One, one final thing on this.
0: What do you see is the trend or the tendency on these two things? Hinduism is one thing in this pluralism we've been talking about, because it feels like in my work and what I hear in the community, it seems like the idea of there being one Hinduism is taking over a bit and we we sometimes forget those internal distinctions.
1: Even in the Rigveda, the end of the Rigveda, it's very clear that we're talking about different types of people with different types of worldviews. Sangatchatam, samvadadam, that lovely uh, concluding part of the Rigveda is asking people who think very, very differently to come and attend to a specific cause um, with, similar, uh, with similar good intention and goodwill, right? That is the heart of our dharma, our ability to understand that people are going to do things differently. But so long as the goal is a decent one, and so long as nobody is being harassed, um, and so long as it's healthy for our body, mind, and intellect, uh, then great, go ahead. If we lose that and we start to become us or them, we're actually going against, um, you know, one of the most often quoted things that people are using nowadays, you know, Vasudeva Kutrumbhaka people know the oh yeah the world is one family the the piece at the beginning says it's the reckoning of misers to say that these people are ours and anybody that doesn't follow us is theirs, those are others for those people who have uh, you know uh, very good characteristics, very magnanimous not use words like good and bad but magnanimous approaches to the world become? The world is a family for that. And in a one family, when you sit down for dinner, you'll have somebody who likes TikTok, somebody who likes YouTube, somebody who likes football, somebody who likes baseball. And they might be arguing amongst each other about what's good for uh, for one another. But when the food comes out and when we all sit down, we sit down and have a conversation that doesn't involve a different sorts of things. So when we lose that, we lose our actual characteristic of that. Then we just... Re- come like any of these other world religions that seek to dominate others and i don't think that that's our dharma um you might other people might disagree with me and that is completely valid but if we were to look for the logic and the historical presence of these kinds of thoughts in our dharmas it is a plurality of dharma standing up for the plurality is what we have done time and time again whether you look at um Jainta Bhatta's Agamadambara inside there is wonderful explanation of how Kashmir did it in the 900s of the common era. I think people should use that as a good starting template and then dig a little bit deeper. Um, I just want to say that, you know, we should be very wary of people who tell us that there is only one way to be Hindu. There are multiple ways of being Hindu. And we need to be able to grow our hearts and, more importantly, grow our minds and intellects to, uh, to if we're not able to contain it ourselves, at least to respect it.
0: I think that's a great place to stop. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I'd be remiss, though, in not asking if there's anything else on this topic that I haven't covered that you think listeners should know about.
1: I want uh, people to know that this is not a challenge to the Hindu identity. We have to have an identity because we are living in this modern world. Um, I just see it as an invitation um, to say that now that we have our, the door has been cracked a little bit and we've been given this one seat at the table, um, how can we make the seat into a bench where we can bring together all of our different cultures and tribes and different types of dharmas that we have in India, in South Asia, broadly speaking, um, so that they too can be part of that place
0: that's it for this episode of that's so hindu if you enjoyed it please take a minute and leave us a nice five-star review it's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners you can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to haf at hinduamerican.org donate thanks again for listening